I'm so glad you're here. Happy Father's Day. Okay, that was good. Hey, you know, before I open up God's Word, I thought it would be really helpful to ask some fathers, actually in different stages of their life, one having very young children, one kind of, well, a little older children, and one actually a grandfather. I I guess you'll have to figure out which one is which. Okay, you can vote later in that. But I've, I've asked each one of these gentlemen to share just a little bit. So let me introduce you to Ryan Schlotman. Ryan's going to start off. And Ryan, here's your question. How has being a dad helped you grow in your relationship with God? Well, um, I will say one thing is just seeing um, when my kids are just having this excited moment or they're super excited about something, just the pure enjoyment they get out of that just makes me think of how God must feel when we, when all of us are in that same spot in life and we get super excited. He's just like, yeah, like, that's awesome. I love seeing that. Um, another one is... Um, um, just how God must feel when when we disappoint Him, um, and how He feels is, I get that way with my children too, when I have to discipline them, and I know that's that feeling I'm feeling. I just don't even un- I can't even fathom how God must feel, because we're we're all His kids, and He has to have that from all of us. So that's. That has grown me closer just to realize, like, there's that correlation um, with that. Um, and with that, the discipline part, when you have to discipline your kids. In Proverbs thirteen twenty four, it says, Whoever spares the rod hates their children, but the one who loves their children is careful to discipline them. Um, I'm a firm believer in discipline. <laughs> I think it is needed for your kids to grow up correctly. Um, and then also... Um, just when your kids accomplish something and that that proud that proud feeling you get when they complete a sport or they get super excited <clears throat> runner went through first grade this year my son and whenever he did good on any work he's like look how good i did or a painting he's like look how look how well this is and i just feel like god gets that from us with all the things we accomplish here, even though it might be small, he gets that way f- for all of us. Just that proud moment. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. This is Dan Paulson. Dan, your question is this. How has your relationship with God helped you parent better? I, to put it in a, a sentence, just one sentence, it's, it's, it's meant everything. But I have a few points, and I, and I wanted to share with you. Um, ever since I was a little kid, I always wanted to have a family. Um, never been a big career-oriented guy. or The goal I had was to be hopefully blessed to have a, a godly wife and to be afforded the opportunity to raise children. And um, having been saved at an early age, like seven or eight, um, 
I, I was thankful, and I had the Holy Spirit leading me as a young child, and I started those preparations for parenting early on in my life. Thankfully, I trusted and let the Lord lead me. And the key is let him lead, trust him. Lead me through my adolescent and teenage years. And as a result, he protected me from regretful decisions that could have carried with me for a lifetime and carry over into my potential family someday. I was thinking of my future children as well before they were even here. God led me to seek out a godly woman to be my partner. And we talked extensively while we dated about our thoughts of parenting and how we would want to bring up our children. We discussed how we, we, once we started having children, how important it was to teach early on what it meant to know Jesus and what a relationship with him was. Michelle and I both understood that as believers, we are dependent on Jesus for everything. And when we have children, they're dependent on us for everything. It's not someone else's job. Because of my relationship with God, I understood the importance of being a God-honoring father and the importance of the father in the house and leading the family. See, I've always believed if I was graced with the blessing of being a father, that I would do my best job and put my best efforts forward to bring them up in the ways of the Lord. And that's because the Lord was leading me at such an early age. We all know that we will stand before the Lord and account for our lives. And because the Lord entrusts us with his children, his children, we have to take account for them when we stand before him and, and what we did to help guide them and to know who he is. And when we talk about fear of the Lord, parenting should be one of those responsibilities where the fear of the Lord should come into play. A fear that of disappointing your parents as a child kind of fear. Fear that doesn't want to disappoint someone you hold in high regard and love deeply. I am very thankful that I had a good parenting model from my parents growing up. And again, that's because they walked with God as well. I worked side by side with my dad for over 30 years. And <clears throat> I got to see what a model of godlike consistency looks like. My dad was the same. He was the same man on Sunday as he was in a very worldly workplace Monday through Friday. And I knew it had an effect on me as a kid, but I appreciate it more that I'm older now. Thank you, Dad. Thank you, Mom, too. And that's what a father is. My dad modeled consistency, and that's what God is. He's consistent. He does not ever change. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We live in a world that is never satisfied with stability and consistency. And in all reality, that's what our father is for us. That's what we should do and model for our children. We all leave a legacy. It can be bad or it can be good, but we're leaving one. It can be worldly or it can be Christ-like. I chose the latter from an early point in my life. And because I did, it naturally caused me to model a life that God models for us. And I'm not standing here to say that I was perfect. I've had many failures and I have many imperfections. But I put, put forth my best effort every day for my kids. See, any big plans in life require planning. A wedding, building and buying a house, 
a career. Parenting requires the same planning, if not more. And we've been gifted with a life manual that shows us how to do it. It's God's word. So use it. Thank you. And this is Doug Peterson. Doug, how has being a dad helped you understand your Heavenly Father better? Yeah, so um, I guess I'm the old man batting cleanup. But uh, I'm a granddad now. I have uh, six kids, three of my own, three stepkids, and and uh, eight uh, grandkids. Um, so I've been through like, I don't know, three or four phases of, you know, being a dad, if you want to call it. So, um, you know, when my kids were younger, I re- recall the scriptures of, you know, training up a child in the way that they should go so that when they are old, they will, will not depart from it. And then they get into the high school years and then college years, and then they're off on their own. And that presents its own set of challenges, uh, at that point, and um, you know, when Rick invited me to come up here and he showed me the the possible questions I could I could pick from as a topic to uh, to talk about the the one that he asked me is the one that really jumped out at me, and when it did, I really felt like God wanted me to emphasize the word mercy, and. Uh, you know, when your kids are older and they kind of little little meandering off the path and the way that they should go, you know, God, you know, I've experienced that and God reminds me of, of my own meanderings when I was younger and how he extended mercy to me. And uh, so that's been a real, a real challenge, a real lesson. That um, really has meant a lot to me as I get older. You know, I, you know, I just turned 64 in May. I think age is like a tenderizer of the heart. And as I've gotten older, I've really come to, you know, there's always going to be grace. Grace is first and foremost. And it's like the, the front side of the coin, but on the back side of the coin, is mercy, and there's a there's a tension there, especially when your kids are older. There's a tension there between, you know, extending grace, which is unmerited favor, and uh, and what you know, and then when you want to do something when they're older, when they kind of meander, uh, mercy is of course the withholding of, uh, of of punishment, even though they deserve it or some kind of discipline, and so. It's really uh, it's just been a very object lesson for me. And it's just the last year or two, as I've you know, become very reflective and looking back on my life, I've seen boatloads of grace extended to me in my life, but also I've seen that mercy. And, and there's there, that tie-in, that, that dichotomy of the two of them working together in God's uh, sovereign will. So I, I, I praise God for that. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it very much. Now, now probably some of you are saying, okay, that was a good message. Let's, uh, 
It was a good message, but we're going to dig in just a little bit today in the book of Matthew, starting at chapter 7. You know, last week we resumed our series, which actually sparked quite a bit of discussion in our small groups. Jesus, as you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, is redefining what walking with the king looks like. He is trying to describe to a generation of disciples, hey, the king is here. And what you have seen in your culture is probably going to look very, very different in how you behave when you come and listen to the king. So last week, we talked about treasure. We talked about worry. We talked about priorities. And as soon as anybody starts talking or reading about that or hearing Jesus' words, we get a little nervous. Well, today, Jesus continues to clarify our relationship with others And our relationship with God. So let's pray. Father, we do come before you and we realize our desperate need for you. We just heard from three gentlemen who are trusting you to give them wisdom and grace for kids, for grandkids. Lord, we need you every hour. We need you every day. We need your wisdom. We need your perspective. And you have given us your word to guide us and direct us and to convict us. We pray that that would happen today. That we all would leave different folks, different people. We also pray, Father, for the various churches that are in our area. Three come to mind, Father. We pray for New Hope and Northbridge and fierce. We ask you, dear God, that you would use the flocks, the communities there, to be salt and light in our world. I also pray, Father, especially for the Lamberts. I I know, Lord, this week in our bulletin, we're focusing on the Mahodas, who have a ministry in Kenya, But, Father, the the Lamberts have just gone through these last three weeks a really hard time. Guam has been hit. The antennas have been disabled for the most part. And, And realistically, this last Thursday, God, you did an amazing thing. Your word is going out powerfully. It's going out to all kinds of different people groups. And we just want to say thank you. We also pray, Father, for all of our kids and our teachers downstairs. For those who are hearing about you, we pray that even at a young age, they will understand your love and your grace and your mercy today. Open our eyes, God, as as we open your word, as we listen to your words. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. To be quite honest, we're going to hit three different sections today. And probably, there are three sections 
that could be some of the most misinterpreted words of Jesus. So hang on, we're going to move forward here. And we're going to try to clarify some things that Jesus says so that we might understand the blessing of walking with the king. So Matthew chapter 7, if you don't have your Bibles or a tablet, you can look at the screen behind me. But Jesus starts off and says this, Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of the speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First rid First get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. There is a good chance that you have used these words or been addressed by these words. You can't judge me. You're not supposed to judge. Well, you may be surprised to learn why Jesus said these words and actually what they really mean. There isn't any doubt that Jesus was addressing the Pharisees here in particular. A group of religious leaders who took pride in putting people in various boxes. Depending upon their religious performances. But in God's kingdom, there's a king and there are subjects. And each one has a role. In God's kingdom, the king is the only one capable of judging a person's thoughts and motives. Therefore, the king is the only one with the authority to condemn. In fact, just about every modern translation will translate the word judge, judge. But it may be better in the context to uh, translate it condemn. Jesus is saying, do not condemn others, simply because that is God's job, not yours. Jesus was direct. Don't confuse our posture with God's. Jesus is saying, don't condemn others, making accusations about motive or eternity. Something that only God can do. Jesus distinguishes between acts of judgment and an attitude of judgmentalism. God's people are certainly called by the Lord to call sin, sin. And we are called by God to discern between good and evil, right from wrong, good fruit from bad fruit. We're even going to see this in chapters, or in verse 17 of this chapter when we eventually get there. But she's saying, don't judge people's motives or look down on people with self-righteous, judgmental spirit thinking you are superior. Because really, even when you think you know the whole story, you probably don't know the whole story. You just don't. 
We all make judgments or evaluate others' behavior or fruit in a family. The one underneath your roof and the one underneath this roof. In the kingdom, behavior matters. If we go to Ephesians, the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Ephesus, starting at chapter 4, in verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore, I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, talking to believers, talking to the Ephesian Christians. For you have been called by God, Paul says. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit. Or or walk with God. He says it oftentimes in this letter. Bind yourselves together with peace. For there is one body and one Spirit, just as you have been called the one glorious hope for the future. Then a little bit later, in chapter 5, verse 1, his words shock you. He starts off, imitate God. Wow. You you wait, you ponder, you question. Are are you kidding me, Paul? (laughs) Like, like, okay, there's a lot of heroes, there's a lot of people, but your standard is God? God? Well, realistically, we read in the first part of our celebration from Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3, basically focus on our position in God, in God's family. How blessing, how wonderful it is. And so Paul is just saying, because you are a son and a daughter of God, because you have this amazing position, live a life that reflects me well, that reflects your family well. And so in Ephesians 5, imitate God. That's your heavenly father. You're spending time with him. You're learning from him, learning how to care for others, learning how to treat others. Therefore, in everything you do, whoa, everything you do, Not some things, but everything. Because you are his dear children, live a life filled with love, following the example of Christ. He loved us and offered himself as a sacrifice for us, a pleasing aroma to God. Is he walking in the spirit, enables us to live a life worthy of our calling. One where we can be humble and gentle and patient with one another. You know, many of us struggle here because mostly of our culture, we have this rugged individualism bent. And there are some who take pride in not submitting to anybody. But in a family, in God's family, there are times when love confronts. 
in Proverbs chapter 27, verses 5 and 6. Solomon writes this, An open rebuke is better than hidden love. Wounds from a a sincere friend are better than many kisses from an enemy. In Luke 17, Jesus himself said this, If another believer sins, rebuke that person. Then, if there's repentance, forgive. Even if that person wrongs you seven times a day, and each time turns again and asks for forgiveness, forgive that person. Hebrews 3.13. The book of Hebrews is, is quite a powerful book. And looks back often on the children of Israel and their relationship with God. And the author of Hebrews helps us put that in perspective. And he says this in chapter 3. You must warn each other every day while it's still today. So that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. We've already covered in our study in Matthew 5. When somebody you know, has something against you. Jesus said, hey, leave your offering. Just there, don't don't offer it. Go make amends, and then you can offer your offering. In Matthew 18, if someone has hurt you, you go to them. Over and over God gives us the ability as a family to be able to work out conflict because conflict is normal, in this, especially in this broken world. You know, Paul is very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Because of time, I'm not going to read the whole text, but in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is writing to the church at Corinth and he's actually appalled. He's saying, hey, there are some scenarios or situations in your church. There are folks that are in sexual sin, and you guys are just living like it's not a problem. Do you understand that the body of Christ is hampered when we don't deal with sin in the body? And he goes on sharing them and says, hey, you've got to deal with that sin. The congregation needs to deal with that sin. And then he goes on and and he says this. He says, when I wrote to you, before I told you not to associate with people who indulge in sexual sin, but I wasn't talking about unbelievers who indulge in sexual sin or who are greedy or cheat people or worship idols, You would have to leave the world to do that. Then he says in verse 12, It's not my responsibility to judge outsiders. Those who are unredeemed. Those who are not part of the body of Christ. But it certainly is your responsibility to judge those inside the church who are sinning. You know, as we look around, even in our world, 
There are so many things that go against our grain. There are so many things that violate God's word. And there are times that we, even as Christians, want everybody to submit and respond to God's word. That would be ideal. But you know, one of the things that Paul is saying here is, you know, it's not our job. To judge or correct those outside the church or your family. But it certainly is when you're looking at the body of Christ. You see, the truth is, sin will always break our hearts. Whether it's inside these walls or outside these walls. You will see people making poor choices. You will be understanding and knowing if they go this direction, that it'll end up in death. It'll end up in misery. And it breaks our hearts. But those who know the Lord, those who have blind spots, it is not only our objective, but it's our privilege to be able to help them see when they're going off the path. Now the truth is, even leaders are even held more accountable to God. In, in Hebrews 13, um, the author there says very clearly, hey, hey, leaders, you're accountable for what you say and what you do. It's interesting in Galatians chapter 2 that Paul literally had to confront Peter. Peter wasn't behaving well, to be quite honest. And Peter had to pull him aside and say, hey, wait a minute, you're acting, well, hypocritically. So here we have these two giant leaders of the early church actually discussing and talking about a blind spot. But in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, uh, the scriptures say this to Paul, or, or to Timothy, the pastor, Paul writes to him, preach the word of God. Timothy, preach it. Make sure the word of God is your source. Be prepared when you do. Whether the time is favorable or not. You know what's interesting is as we go through scriptures and as we teach here expositorily, there are certainly sections I'd love to skip. I would. But the admonition is preach the word, be prepared, whether it's favorable or not, whether people receive it favorably or not, and patiently correct, if it calls for it, rebuke, if it calls for it, and encourage your people with good teaching. You see what's exciting here, really, is that once we get ourselves properly postured under God, we can join in others growing in holiness together as kingdom followers of Jesus. This is about self-awareness and other awareness, shaped by God awareness. You see, as we walk with God and we see our sin and we personally humbly deal with our sin, then we're able to help others on their road to holiness. 
What Jesus said is take out your log. Quit being a hypocrite. You deal with others humbly, patiently, mercifully, graciously with forgiveness because you know that's how you need to be dealt with. What Jesus here forbids is self-righteousness, hasty, unmerciful, prejudice, and unwarranted condemnation based on human standards and human understanding. What is forbidden is rigid judgmentalism that scrutinizes others without even a glance of looking at yourself. Jesus is saying you can't follow Jesus. You can't be a disciple and be blind to sin. Yours or others. Sin is heinous, offensive to God, and lethal to you and to me. So deal with your sin, take the log out, confess it, confront, instruct, and restore. Once again, if you've been around very much, this all flows from an up relationship. A relationship with God is critical and helps us deal with those inside these walls and outside these walls. Now let's jump to Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. My Bible almost opens right to the Sermon on the Mount. Magically. Verse 6. Don't waste what is holy on people, or many of your translations, dogs, who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. They will trample the pearls and then turn and attack you. Jesus is saying, don't waste what is holy or sacred on people, literally dogs who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to the pigs. When we first read this, we scratch our heads. And a casual reading without the cultural understanding actually can confuse us. Christ's words can be offensive in so many ways. Let me explain. Jesus is saying the same thing two different ways, which adds force to his shocking words. He is talking about two despised animals to a Jew, but was clearly referring to Gentiles. And I know there's some extreme dog lovers here. But let me explain back just in the first century. Dogs were not pets back then, all right? And pigs were unclean animals to a Jew. Gentiles were often referred to as dogs. And Gentiles, the non-Jews, were despised because they ate unclean animals like pork. Now bear with me. Jesus was communicating, not condoning. Jesus loves and values all people. And that's why a casual reading of this text makes us struggle. We also need to define, if we're going to understand this, what is holy and sacred or what is a pearl or what is valuable. Well, Jesus is referring to the gospel here, the good news. That the Savior has come 
And you can be saved from the penalty of sin and from the power of sin and from the presence of sin eventually. The gospel is something that's so very valuable. In just a few chapters on, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus gives a kingdom parable talking about the the kingdom and trying to describe it to people and saying it's like a pearl of great value. So if we put all this together, Christ's words still cut across our grain, but let's flesh this out. Jesus is teaching his disciples, listen carefully here, not to share the gospel with Gentiles at this time because they do not value it. Let me say this, deliberate expansion to the Gentiles, that's going to come later. But Jesus is saying, don't evangelize Gentiles now. It's time for you to focus on family, your fellow Jews. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew chapter 10, verses 5 and 6. He said, don't go anywhere but the lost sheep of Israel. When I send you out, I want you to evangelize the Jews. Now, we do know that the time for evangelizing everyone or the Gentiles actually came. So many of you know Matthew 28, when Jesus, right before he ascended up to heaven, said, all authority has been given to me. So go and make disciples of all nations. In Acts chapter 10 and 11, Jesus said very clearly, or or God designed the story where the Holy Spirit came to the Jews in Acts chapter 2. Then the Holy Spirit came to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. And then Acts chapter 10 and 11, the Holy Spirit came to the Gentiles. And then, of course, Paul spent the majority of his ministry planting churches in Gentile areas. Now, there are some scholars that think Jesus isn't referring to Gentiles here, but basically anyone who disrespects the gospel. Well, either way, there are some important truths for us to take away today. There are times to focus on people close to home, folks you have a relationship with now. Jesus certainly did that when he was here. The gospel is powerful, it's sacred, it's valuable, and it is to be given out. But there are going to be people who refuse to have anything to do with holy and precious things of God, except to trample them under their feet and tear God's people to pieces. But I think what Jesus is saying is, be wise and appropriate. Will me sharing the gospel at this time to this person or people group, will it honor God or vilify God? And I think those are the things, again, that God continually encourages us to walk in the Spirit. He will give us guidance and strength. He will give us words, and he'll know, or he'll prompt us when we are to speak and when we are to be quiet. 
Now, we only have a few minutes left, but I'd like to start in Matthew chapter 7, starting at verse 7. It's going to be important because some of us have heard some bad messages about this text. Let let me explain. First of all, chapter 7, verse 7. Jesus says, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives and everyone who seeks finds. And everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. You parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask Him? If we don't get this passage right, we create a busy God who only listens when He's nagged. So we better persist and we better not give up or else God's not going to answer our prayers. But God is not a genie, and nor does he only answer the persistent. So what is prayer? And what difference does prayer actually make? Well, let's put it in context. Prayer is talking with God. Prayer assumes a relationship. When you talk with God, it's something you do on a walk. It's something you do across a table with a cup of coffee in your hand. You're having a conversation. Relationship talking involves sharing. It involves listening. And it also involves, at times, requests. But you and I both know that uh, that relationships don't last long if communication only does ask. Hey, can I have this? Can you do this for me? It seems very one-sided and odd. You see, we know that neither Jesus nor his disciples actually got everything they asked for. We know that. Sometimes prayer is not answered because of motives. Sometimes prayer is not answered because we're in sin and God doesn't hear us. Sometimes prayer isn't answered because the request is not God's will. Sometimes when we pray, God does respond. But he doesn't respond in our time frame or in the way we want. And literally, we just don't have God's perspective in everything. So Jesus is teaching his disciples here to go to their good, good father. To ask and expect him to respond. Why? Because in the context, we really need wisdom. If you want wisdom to know how to help a sinning brother and how to discern falsehood and apostasy, go to your heavenly Father, ask, seek, and knock. And God will give you. You will receive. You will find. And you will have a door opened. Go to God. You can trust God. God loves you. 
And then what Jesus says, which is so amazing. He says, if earthly parents, or even a father in this case, you know earthly ones, ones that struggle with sin, ones who have a sin bent, ones that always don't make wise choices, those fathers, earthly parents, if they want to give good gifts to their children, even with their bent. Can you imagine what God, the perfect heavenly Father, wants to give you? God is good because God is our Father. As parents' goodness, as we see parents' goodness, it's a small window of really what God is like. What Jesus is doing here is amazing. He is anchoring his understanding of prayer to the goodness of God. You see, oftentimes as we have discussions, whether in small groups or just personally, you'll hear this and you'll probably admit it. You know, I could do better in prayer. You know what? I need to pray more. You know what? It's just not a a priority for me. And then you can guilt each other and say, yeah, I'm going to get up and I'm going to make prayer lists. And and you start going down this avenue. You know what really changes our prayer life? Is a compelling vision of God. Corporately and personally. Our prayer life as a church or as individuals will never grow if our image of God is perverted. It won't. You see, prayer isn't important if you think God is distant, if God is uncaring, or if God is weak. Why pray? This is the enemy's strategy. Pervert the image of God so that you doubt God, you doubt his word. But as a relationship deepens, faith is strengthened. Your perception of God grows and your prayer life happens. So when you hear Paul say, never stop praying, when you're a newer Christian or an immature Christian, you go like, how is it possible? But as you grow and God reveals himself to you, you start to get it. (laughs) I can't wait to talk to God. God is amazing. God's going to care for me. In Philippians Chapter 4, verses 6 and 7. A verse I used last week. But a verse that's worthy to say again. In fact, this verse has just rocked my world this week. It just has. It's been convicting. And I've seen my perception of God grow. Paul writes this, don't worry about anything. Don't worry about anything, anything, anything. Instead, pray about everything. Do not be concerned about your job. 
Why? Pray about it. That's all. You have a good, good father. He, he's watching over you. He will give you faith. He will give you strength. Well, Rick, that doesn't pay the bills. I get it. But God is going to take care of you. He's going to take care of me. Don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need. Thank Him for all that He's done. Then you will experience God's peace. You will have peace. What a promise. In this harried world. In this world, we never understand the stock market. We never understand the jobs. We never understand our health. Who is going to guarantee you any of these things? Don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. Tell God. Talk to Him. Hey, hey God, did, did, were you there in my office yesterday when my boss said, I'm done? Were you there? Oh, you were there. You were there. So God, what does that mean? Let me wrap up. Jesus today hits three critical areas and changes our mind about relationships with others and Him. He says, be part of a healthy community, which means deal with sin well. That means dealing first with our personal sin and then encouraging others to listen to God because their lives... And our community depends on it. Secondly, share the gospel with those around you. Really. They will be the most responsive. Maybe not always. And then pray. Pray because you have a good, good father. Let's pray. Father, your words are difficult and as as we look at living life underneath your reign and rule we feel like failures at times we do lack faith we are hypocritical and don't deal with our own sin we think sin is casual we don't understand how horrific and heinous it is God, we come before you as a group of followers who are hungry for you. Change our perspective of who you are, Lord. Change our understanding of you. Help us understand our position of being a child of the King. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're a dad, we'd like you to stand at this moment. Because what I am going to do is I am going to pray over you. So the rest of us, we can pray along with me. But we'd like to pray for our dads today. Let's do this. Father, I I was reminded yesterday at a wedding how important the role of a dad is. I saw a dad talk about 
his daughter and heard the sacrifices that he had made and the love that he had for her. And I knew, God, I knew that you were being honored, not only in that family, but in the new family that was being established. So as I thought about that, Father, I knew how important it was for us to pray for our fathers, our dads today. So our Father in heaven, on this day when fathers are being remembered and honored throughout the world, we first honor you. We worship and adore you, our heavenly Father. Father, I pray for our fathers today. Open their eyes that they might see you clearly and experience your love for them. Create in them a deep sense of trust in you, knowing that they can count on you to help them lead and protect those dependent on them. Demonstrate to them your amazing grace and forgiveness as they seek to love and know you with all their heart and soul and mind. Release them from unwanted burdens or a false guilt and bless them for their willingness to keep short accounts with others, forgiving both themselves and their family. Strengthen their confidence in the only one who can bring good out of every situation. Father, teach our fathers how to meet the needs of their children's lives that are within his ability to do so. Help him trust you for all the rest. Push out any needless fears and grant to him godly wisdom and spiritual guidance to lead and direct your precious children in their path. Give him a passionate faith, a persevering spirit, and a powerful testimony that overcomes any weakness and doubt as he wears the armor of God daily, which you have provided for him as spiritual leader and child of God. Complete any healing of past hurts or regrets that may interfere with parenting or grandparenting in his children. Build plans. Build, excuse me. Build in him a sense of joy, Lord, and humility and playfulness that draw his family close. And Lord, when plans don't develop as he hopes or dreams not yet realized, open his eyes to see the wonderful world to greater joy. And knowing that you will never disappoint. Father, we thank you for the fathers among us. Soon to be fathers, young fathers, middle-aged fathers, old fathers and grandfathers. Thank you, Father, for their sacrifices and their desire to reflect your heart to their children. Make them aware of the privilege, gift, and responsibility of fatherhood. 
Cause them not to provoke their children to anger, but to lead them in your gracious discipline and instruction. Fill those who are weary with fresh strength for the task. And may they know your Spirit's power in their weakness. Show them how effective the prayers of a godly man are and what a difference they can make to those around them, no matter how big or small the assignment. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our fathers whom you specifically chose for us, whether by natural birth or adoption. For those who have had good fathers, we thank you for their example, their care, their counsel, their presence in our lives. May we honor them appropriately through our words and deeds. We also thank you for our spiritual fathers, men who have helped us grow in our faith. For those who don't have good memories of their fathers, we we pray that you would be strengthened. They would be strengthened with power through your spirit in their inner being so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith, that they would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. We pray for patience to understand, mercy to forgive, and courage to stand firm in the truth of the gospel. For those fathers who are estranged from a child or children, or anyone who is unreconciled with their own father, would you help them understand your love and your desire to draw all people to yourself? For those who have never known their father, may they be aware that, or or aware than ever, that you are the father of the fatherless, and that nothing in all of creation will be able to separate us from your love. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and give you his peace. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.